Welcome to Psyched for Business, helping business leaders understand and apply cutting-edge business psychology principles in the workplace. Hi, and welcome to Psyched for Business. I'm your host, Richard Anderson. Thank you very much for tuning in. In this episode, I'm joined by Andrew Munro. Andrew is a chartered psychologist with over 30 years' experience in the corporate sector as well as in consulting. He's a conference speaker and author of many articles and books, including his latest, A to Z and Back Again, Adventures and Misadventures in a Talent World, which I have to say I very much enjoyed. In this episode, we're going to be covering why do intelligent people do stupid things? I hope you enjoy it. Thanks again for listening. So, Andrew Monroe, thank you very much for joining me. How are you doing? All good, Richard, and thanks for the invitation to join in uh, another of your uh, podcasts. I've been really looking forward to having you on, Andrew. I know that we've been in conversation about this and other things for quite some time, and there's a load of things that we could have focused this podcast around, but we've chosen a particular topic, and I think it's going to be one that might be a little bit contentious, but we'll see. Uh, So this whole notion of why do intelligent people do stupid things, that's what we've chosen as a title Okay, let's maybe start with intelligence. I know that you've got some strong opinions and a lot of knowledge, ironically, on the uh, on the subject. Definitely been some confusion, some controversies over the years when it comes to intelligence, but would you mind maybe starting by briefly summarizing those issues and giving us a bit of a background in the topic of intelligence? You're right. There's been no end of uh, controversies. Where to start? One, the lack of an agreed definition. The absence of a decent theory. Ian Deary, one of the world-class uh, researchers in this field, who does fantastic uh, work, has pointed out we're still a bit theoretical. Third, lots of muddles about methodology. Four, debates about the causes and consequences of intelligence. Fifth, the social impact of uh, testing. In a very strange historical uh, quirk, Both Adolf Hitler and uh, Joseph Stalin banned intelligence testing. For Hitler, the tests were too Jewish. For Stalin, the tests were too bourgeois. So when we um, move into the world of intelligence and testing, we're also moving into the world of ideology. Okay, I know that we don't have time maybe on this podcast to work through the entire history of intelligence and testing, although I know that'll be a, a very, very interesting topic. But having done some research, of course, for this podcast, my understanding is that intelligence testing began as a a bit of an educational diagnostic tool. And it was all about identifying which children would need additional support. But then after that, the emphasis shifted and testing was deployed as more of an assessment to identify who was smarter or more intelligent or cleverer than others. That's right. It did originate with an education and then it has moved on. I'm sure all of our listeners will be familiar with the concept of IQ. So this is calculated by dividing the test taker's mental age from their uh, test responses by their uh, chronological age, then multiplying this uh, number by 100. How did that work, or how does an IQ test work? So individuals complete a series of uh, tasks, and they vary. An example would be, Day is to night as sun is to blank. Yeah. Well, you didn't make me answer that. (laughs) (laughs) Then there was all the unfolded cubes, number sequences. There's any number of different formats. 
The overall score was then was then calibrated to indicate the extent to which this score was above or below than expected from your chronological age. So that's way back. Things have moved on, and IQ scores are now compared with a reference group, a norm group that allows you to um, see how your score compares with others who've also completed the test. Which seems on the, the face of it a little bit more robust. So am I right in thinking that the 11 plus test, so that was obviously the test that children had in their last year of primary school, and all about do we get into grammar school or not, that was a variation of the IQ test, wasn't it? It was. So what began as an educational uh, diagnostic tool turned into kind of Hogwarts sorting hats. So this, here we go back to the 1940s, and uh, the 11 plus was uh, phased out in the 60s, although variations of it are still in use. You've still got high IQ societies now. I'm familiar, not hugely familiar, but I'm familiar with the concept of Mensa, which I think you've got to get above a certain threshold, maybe. To join Mensa you need to be above the threshold of an IQ of 132. So that's one in 50 of the uh, population. If that's not enough for you, you might want to join the uh, Prometheus Society. Here the requirement is an IQ of 164. So (laughs) I know, bear with me, bear with me. Here you're in one in 30,000 of the population. Right. Again, if that's not enough... There's another society, the Mega Society, where um, you need an IQ of 175, which is uh, one in a million in the population. I can see you've got the T-shirt on. (laughs) No, 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 no. To jump ahead a wee bit, what is fascinating is the amount of uh, bickering that goes on within and between these uh, societies. And also, and we'll come on to this, a significant amount of uh, weirdness. <laughs> right. So can I then check, is intelligence no more than a marker of how good somebody is academically? That has been the major uh, criticism. Conventional IQ tests might be good at predicting educational attainment, but not much more than that. What has been problematic for these crit- uh, critics is that of all the traits that psychologists have attempted to measure, IQ, or what is now uh, more commonly known as uh, general mental ability, stands out head and shoulders above other traits and is predictive power of uh, life outcomes. We're not looking at massive correlations, but enough for general mental ability to be seen as an important factor. Okay, so when you talk there about predictive power of life, outcomes what sorts of things do you mean is that like um maybe work financial relationships yep and even things like your uh, likelihood of not going to prison but here we get or we move into a bit of a messy world and a whole bunch of uh, socioeconomic uh, factors need to be part of the uh, mix and I know, Richard, you, you don't want me to uh, stray into uh, politics. No, we're like the BBC here, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> we're not even getting that. <laughs> but there is a sense that social mobility has reduced. There is a widening gap between the haves and the have-nots. 
However flawed the 11 plus was, it was one of those um, gaps intended to address. And I, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, we, we'll have a maybe the political discussion when we get to the pub, but uh, maybe a topic for another time. But aren't there lots of different types of intelligence, not just general mental ability? Perhaps the most ambitious project was led by a psychologist, uh, Guilford, back in the uh, 1950s. And he mapped out a model that identified 180 intellectual abilities. I'm not going to list them out now, mainly because most of them were never uh, found. More recently, Howard Gardner, and a lot of uh, our listeners will be aware of his concept of multiple intelligence. And he suggested eight different types, spatial, bodily, kinesthetic, musical, interpersonal, and so on. Even more recently, Robert Sternberg, first-class guy, he argues for three. Practical, our ability to get along in different contexts. Creative, how we uh, come up with new ideas. And analytical, how we evaluate information and solve problems. And I guess the analytical has been the uh, focus of previous IQ-type intelligence tests. Obviously, in our world, Andrew, the world of assessment, the current trend or or what I often see is this whole general mental ability being broken down into very specific aptitudes, so verbal reasoning, numerical reasoning, those sorts of things. And I have to say, I think this is a pretty good idea. I like it above like a general type of reasoning test. I mean, for me, I've always thought that I've been decent. I'm not saying brilliant, but decent at English, but certainly not good at maths. So I think I personally would fare far better in a verbal reasoning test than I would a numerical reasoning. Is that often the case? So put to the test, tests of um, distinct, specific cognitive aptitudes are highly correlated. But, and this is the big but, at a certain level of uh, general mental ability, the G, the general uh, factor, breaks up i.e. you get lower correlations across different uh, aptitudes. And I think that probably explains why, back to your point about assessment, why specific um, aptitude tests are used more often in selection than general IQ-type tests. Would you mind just, just really quickly, if we're taking the direction of exploring some of the other areas of intelligence that, again, in our world that we, we hear about quite regularly that are maybe different to cognitive? I'm thinking Daniel Goleman's emotional intelligence, or again, as we call it, EQ, and how much more predictive that is than IQ. Yeah, I remember um, this going back to the 80s. It's a claim that's not aged all that well. Uh, the evidence base of the last 20, 30 years hasn't been brilliant. I see that Daniel's been uh, backpedaling um, since. Having said all of that, I did come across a piece of research that indicated emotional intelligence might be a more critical factor for entrepreneurial success. So I need to look into that. But you're right. There's a whole bunch of intelligence. It's like it's almost like kind of alphabet soup from um, you know the adversity quotient, spiritual intelligence, Zen intelligence. It's quite topical because 
within the last couple of weeks, I read an article on, I think it was called the six cues of leadership, maybe, with all of these different different ones. Different questions, yeah. And at this point, the uh, concept of um, intelligence is getting so stretched to the point where meaning is lost. Richard Flynn, one of uh, the key uh, researchers in this field, proposed humorously, but, well, I hope it was humorously, uh, there's a new type of intelligence that's waiting to be uh, discovered called uh, stuffing beans up your nose. So, Andrew, would you, would you, would you mind just quickly pulling back and, and getting a, a sense of intelligence as part of the bigger framework of success? We've talked separately about maybe doing a podcast in the future around the dynamics of success, the levels and types and those sorts of things. But what would you say, if not intelligence, what is the, you know, what is the biggest factor of success for you? Luck. So this is success. And as you say, uh, Richards, we need to be a little bit more um, specific about the definition of uh, success. But broadly, um, success is about time and place. To be born at the right time, in the right place. So Warren Buffett, investor, one of the wealthiest uh, people on the uh, planet, he uh, makes the very honest point, if I'd been born 10,000 years ago, I'd have been some animal's lunch because I can't run very fast and I can't climb trees. And what Warren is saying, his success is largely an outcome of the modern day context in which he finds himself. And his skill set, analyzing company data, making um, tough investment decisions, he found a niche. That's the reason for his success. A very, very fair point, and he articulates it very well, as do you. What would you say, are there any other factors that we can look at, maybe a side look? Our listeners will be horrified if we just say, luck, full stop. <laughs> Is that it? So again, Warren Buffett proposed three other factors. Integrity, intelligence, which we've uh, talked about and talk about uh, a little bit more, and energy. It's funny because I, I know that you're a big fan of Warren, and, uh, and I have to say I am too. And I've, I've watched a few of his YouTube videos, and I, I watched a very specific interview where he he really nails it on on that point. And he says something along the lines of, "You really don't want to hire an intelligent and motivated individual if they're lacking integrity. If they don't have that integrity, that's the very last person you want to hire. Of course, they're going to be really, really smart. They're going to be incredibly ambitious." but at doing probably the wrong thing in the wrong way, usually for themselves and not for other people. And I thought he was bang on with that. Exactly. And lots of recent examples to draw on from the worlds of politics and business. But I uh, suspect if we uh, go down that little rabbit hole, we'll be talking for the next three hours. I was going to say, yes, let's not name any names on that, but we can probably <laughs> name a few guesses. So can we move on to the word stupidity, which this is the bit that I thought might be a little bit contentious when we chose this as a podcast title, but um, it's quite a hard-hitting word, isn't it? What, what do we mean by it? It is a hard-hitting word, uh, Richard, and we don't mean stupid people. We mean stupid behaviour. Stupidity comes from um, a Latin word that basically means uh, to be stunned. 
So this is stupidity, not about, you know, not simply the lack of intelligence, but a kind of mindset of uh, befuddlement. And we all experience this, you know. What was I thinking? How could I have been so stupid? Daft is the uh, Scottish equivalent. Yes, we, we use daft as well. But I'm not sure it translates uh, globally. Yeah, maybe not, yeah. So stupid, yeah, makes more sense, yeah. And my interest in the psychology of stupidity was triggered by a comment by Charlie Munger, sidekick of uh, Warren Buffett, as it happens. And he highlighted a fundamental uh, life principle. Before we do the smart stuff, stop the stupid stuff. For example, never do anything that you wouldn't want to explain to the uh, paramedics. Don't drink and drive. Yeah, it's it's funny listening to you talk about those. It reminds me of, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with it, the Darwin Awards. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, so it, was, it was brought to my attention a few years ago, and I have to sit and, sit and scroll through that and just laugh because um, basically for anybody who doesn't know what the Darwin Awards are, it's essentially it's a website that records examples of people doing absolutely extraordinarily stupid things or daft things, as we might say, and actions that unfortunately sometimes result in, in their death. It is a bit dark when I think about it like that, but it's, it is also quite funny. I, I don't know how familiar you are. Well, you said you're familiar, Andrew, but um, one of the examples that I loved on there was uh, a guy who thought he was so astute at Kung Fu that he decided to try and um, take a lion on with his bare hands. And uh, you probably guessed it. <laughs> Oddly enough, I noticed in the paper yesterday, Richard, that 10% of the population think they could win a fight with a chimpanzee. Well, good luck. Good luck. My own favourite is the guy who tied uh, 45 helium balloons to his garden chair. He wanted to uh, float up and hover, you know, maybe 50 feet over his neighbourhoods. I mean, you know, he took a few sandwiches and a few beers. At 16,000 feet. I know. I have read this and I keep laughing. Yeah. He knew he was in trouble. So uh, he frantically began popping the balloons, ending up entangled in a power line that blanked out the neighbourhoods he was planning to um, hover over. <laughs> That's why he did it, Larry said. Larry, a uh, helium guy, said, yeah. a man just can't sit around. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. I love that. Absolutely fantastic. You know, reviewing the examples on the website, I mean, I have to say it seems no coincidence that uh, these Darwin Awards are often won by young men who've had a, a bit too much to drink. Indeed. So alcohol's one factor in stupidity. Others include a fixed belief system that is embedded within our uh, personal identities. And there's a whole set of cognitive uh, biases Daniel Kahneman and a whole others have um, explored. We seem to have two decision-making systems. System one, instinctive and automatic, and it gets a lot of stuff done uh, quickly. System two, more thoughtful and reflective. And we get into trouble when system one, emotional triggers, take over our uh, judgment and uh, decisions on uh, tasks for, you know, it's not suited. I like the work of Daniel Kim, and and I also like the analogy of the car that you'll no doubt be 
familiar with. You might have a powerful engine, your cognitive horsepower, as we like to call it. But if you don't know how you, you're going to use the gears or don't know how to use the gears, you're in big trouble. Exactly. You forget to take the handbrake off. You'll simply uh, burn rubber or your car breaks down because you haven't had it serviced. I get that. And then, you know, we all do stupid or daft stuff. But why don't we go back to the very essence of, of the podcast and the question that we're asking at the beginning. What makes intelligent people do stupid things? Do you think they're more prone to stupidity than maybe, let's say, the average person? So here's an example. We'll call it the James Bond villain factor. There's a terrific book, The Heretic's Guide to Management, and the authors um, pose an interesting question. How is it that James Bond stayed alive long enough to star in so many movies? I don't know what the last count is. 25? I don't know. Bond has to contend with powerful adversaries, phenomenal intellects, but for all their uh, smarts, evil men, <laughs> sorry, I can't stop laughing at this uh, thought, evil um, mega geniuses are actually pretty dumb. And that's, of course, drama. But there's a fantastic uh, clip from the spoof Austin Powers. Well, go on. Why might intelligent people in that case be particularly vulnerable to the, to the daft stuff? Have a go, Richard. Oh, why? Right, put me on the spot. Well, I'm thinking maybe off the top of my head, I don't know what, what you might call it, but intellectual arrogance, let's say. I mean, is that, is that one? Yes. The first hazard is that smart people overreach themselves. So this is the problem of the individual whose um, glittering intellectual brilliance overextends itself to take on problems outside their uh, circle of uh, competence. Lots of examples, but here's one from um, history. An exchange between Arthur Conan Doyle, the writer of the uh, Sherlock Holmes books, and Houdini, the magician and illusionist. So Holmes is the uh, detective who applies the power of intelligence, logical, objective reasoning to solve uh, crimes. Conan Doyle was also interested in the paranormal. So he invited Houdini to attend a seance in which uh, Amidjo made uh, contact with the other side. I'm interested to find out how did, how did that work out then? <laughs> well, Houdini, the illusionist, he identified the uh, tricks of the trade, cut quite quickly through the whole uh, charade. Colin Doyle, the exemplar of critical reasoning, was having none of um, Houdini's explanation. And sadly, in a bitter uh, breakup, the pair ended their uh, relationship. Ended their relationship. So it's all because of, I guess, Conan Doyle's intellectual arrogance convinced of, that he, you know, his critical reasoning skills or whatever were far superior to Houdini's explanation to this trick. What a sad situation. But yeah, that's a great example of intellectual arrogance. Yes, and Houdini, um, reflecting on this um, episode, remarked, as a rule, I have found out the greater the brain has and the better educated they are, the easier it has been to mystify them. 
there's a lot of uh, research on um, con men, con, con men, con women, and they target more intelligent people. Interesting, isn't it? The technical term is earned dogmatism. We think our brilliance in one field gives us the right to apply our uh, brilliance to other fields. And there's even more interesting research on Nobel Prize winners who went on to make absolutely daft claims about their uh, speciality. Right. Okay, so we've established that intellectual arrogance is one factor. What else is then? Please don't ask me, Andrew, because I'm at the, the, the limit of my, uh, <laughs> my knowledge on this subject. It's a bit related. Motivated reasoning is a process in which we uh, draw on our arguments to uh, disconfirm opposing views to uh, defend our position. So here we want to protect our existing uh, beliefs. If we think of our beliefs as possessions, we don't want to lose them. I have to say on that point, you see a lot of it, don't you, on social media and Twitter and places like that, where somebody's so wedded to a particular view, it doesn't matter what anybody says, they're not going to change their mind. Do you think it's... You think it's a bit of a pride thing, would you say? High intelligence equals excessive pride, maybe not wanting to admit you're wrong? Yep. I'm sure ego is a massive factor. But again, there's a bit of a nuance. What is often neglected is that the correlation between self-reported measures of intelligence and aptitude is, in fact, pretty low. Some highly intelligent individuals rate themselves as, you know, not especially uh, smart. And some of relatively low intelligence see themselves as highly intelligent. That latter is obviously not a good combination. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't sound good. Yeah, doesn't sound good. But um, coming back to your uh, point, uh, Richard, motivated reasoning is a bit different. Unsurprisingly, those with higher levels of intelligence, particularly as defined by analytical, logical, critical reasoning. They're particularly skilled at this. After a debate on some topic of disagreement and the facts are presented to challenge the motivated reasoner's argument, they don't change their minds. They become even more entrenched in their position. Okay. And and can you think of any maybe any examples of motivated reasoning that 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 you might be able to draw upon? This one's a bit tragic, actually, but it's also uh, telling how uh, motivated reasoning uh, works. Steve Jobs, an individual of extraordinary intelligence and creativity, he applied the equivalent of motivated reasoning. He called this his reality uh, distortion field. It allowed him to block out inconvenient facts and challenges to his ideas. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. He was convinced, and others was was wrong. And as a purposeful uh, approach to innovation, he revolutionised their technology. But this outlook uh, backfired in his own personal life. Right, what happened? Steve Jobs was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He ignored the uh, medical advice for treatment. He relied on a few quack remedies. 
herbal cures, spiritual healing, a fruit juice uh, diet. His extraordinary intelligence led him to believe and able to argue, back to motivated reasoning, and argue he knew better than the doctors. And sadly, he died way, way before his uh, time. Yeah, of course he did. And yeah, that, I mean, that is a, a really, really sad example, but a, but a good one for, for motivated reasoning. So you might be highly intelligent, but if you've got the wrong mindset, so we've talked obviously one based on arrogance. You mentioned before that expression entitled dogmatism and also motivated reasoning. You, you might be your own worst enemy. We've talked about some really interesting things in my view, and I hope the listeners feel the same. I'm sure they will. But can we conclude maybe with the so what factor? So what does all this mean? What's the practical implications of of what we've discussed? Lots, but three um, suggestions. The first is let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Intelligence matters, and it matters in most domains of life. But I would say we need to find more imaginative ways to measure it. There are um, an improvement on previous, current cognitive uh, tests. Any ideas around how, how we could do that? Well, we could go down the biological routes, assess brain structures, physiological processes. Given the current state of neuropsychology, I would say we're not remotely there yet. I can't think of any candidate who would want to be uh, shown down a corridor to uh, be wired up to the electrodes as part of our selection process. Yeah, you might get a bit of pushback on that one. But uh, yeah, we'll rule that one out then in that case. Anything else? The other direction is to uh, design tests that mirror more realistically the requirements of the role within um, the selection process. Measures of abstract thinking, critical reasoning, they're important and they have their place. But we've had a century of test development and validation and any number of advances in technology. And I'm sure we can do better. Scenarios-based assessments, situational judgment tests, they all have promise but I would say we're not there yet. Okay, and, and how, and obviously we're not a test publisher, but how are the test publishers from what you see responding to, to, to this stuff? Being candid, it's not in their interest to uh, change their operating uh, model or the legacy base of their uh, clients, some cost investment and all of that, which is why I anticipate innovation not through the uh, in terms of cognitive testing, not through the psychometric uh, tradition, but from, I don't know, techie firms who don't have that history of past uh, assumptions and begin to look at the field with um, fresh eyes. Yeah. I, I mean, so we've, we've talked about the biological route not going to happen, potentially the test route showing some promise with situational judgment tests. Any any other recommendations? We need uh better decision-making model to integrate different strands of information about the individual. So back to Warren Buffett, high levels of intelligence will not compensate for low levels of integrity. It only makes things worse. 
So we need to be a lot smarter in how we build our understanding of individuals, whether it's uh, selection candidates or um, promotion uh, prospects, that factors in uh, a whole range of requirements. I mean, it's a really good point. I, I have to say, in my experience, you'll often see organisations throw a bunch of assessments at candidates. They're, they're not particularly systematic in any particular way or how they weight the data from the assessments as part of a like a proper coherent selection decision-making strategy. I have sat in so many selection reviews, assessment centre wash-ups, and the decision outcomes or very little re- relationship to the assessment data. Yeah. I guess there's a third theme, uh, Richard, which is one we should go beyond the individual to think of our collective intelligence and two sort of related thoughts. The days of personal intellectual heroics are probably largely over. Not completely, and it varies by uh, discipline, But much of the focus, and this is about some of the work I've been doing in um, higher education, the focus is on collaboration. There's no shortage of very smart people, but how can organisations create an environment that nurtures teams, not just within the uh, university, but with other partnerships for greater creativity and innovation? Yeah, and I have to say that's a, that's a pattern that I'm certainly seeing in the projects or a lot of the projects that we get involved with. Of course, the individual matters. That's that's obvious. That's 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 read. That's given. But the individual themselves can only optimize their impact within the work group they're part of. And if you can't be smart by deploying others' intelligence, you're going to be you're going to be constrained, aren't you? Exactly. And then over and above the um, immediate work group. There's the organisational context and a context that can make stupidity more or less likely. Lots of factors, foolish strategies, siloed functions, power dynamics, flawed incentive systems. Obviously, as you would imagine, I I did a bit of research for this podcast and I, I do remember reading a book quite a long time ago my memory was refreshed when I was doing that prep and it's called um, The Smartest Guys in the Room and it's obviously the story of uh, Enron's downfall and uh, for anybody listening who's not familiar but that was a, a firm that brought in the best the brightest from all these Ivy League universities and top tier consulting firms and the company was eventually brought down and it was not despite but because of its intelligence but lack of Integrity. Yeah, brilliant example. The uh, dynamics of organizational success and decline are complex. But here's a thought experiment. If you wanted to sabotage a company, you know, one of your uh, competitors, what would you do? You would bring in lots of smart people with low integrity and reward them for the wrong results. Because when there's no downsides to daft decision-making and failures rewarded, we shouldn't expect anything more than stupid outcomes that uh, trigger um, corporate decline. Brilliant. So let's summarise then. 
So we've talked about three ways forward. So, so how we measure intelligence in ways that are more accessible and relevant in to today's challenges. There's also the need to see intelligence as only one piece within the overall jigsaw. Of course, there are many pieces, and particularly for some roles, if we neglect integrity, then we're going to get ourselves into big trouble. And also the importance, of course, of context and how organizations can set the scene through functional silos, political gamesmanship, denial about the future, and so on, for intelligent people to do some things. Yes. But I feel, Richard, we've only uh, scratched the surface or either that or opened a can of uh, worms on a complex but very important set of issues. And we haven't even touched on some of the uh, complexities and controversies around intelligence, testing, bias, adverse impact. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other stuff really that uh, we um, didn't have time for. Well, if if you're happy and willing, I would love to get uh, you know into those discussions in maybe future podcasts to be continued, as they say. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Well, Andrew Munro, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me about this uh, really interesting topic. I've thoroughly enjoyed having you on this podcast, and uh, yeah, great to speak. Thanks, Richard. My uh, pleasure. Do we have time for a final soundbite? Yeah, why not? Go for it. All right. Alan Kay, one of the um, early computing pioneers, his ideas were pretty much stolen by everyone. He said, a change in perspective is worth 80 IQ points. Nice. I uh, truly believe that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just while I remember, I know that some of these issues of course are going to be covered in your sequel to a to z which i give a bit of an intro um to at the very beginning but how is the sequel coming along uh pretty well we're hoping for release in spring 2023 brilliant well fantastic thank you very much andrew Thanks for listening to Psych for Business. For show notes, resources, and more, visit evolveassess.com. 